It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it, because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants Mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com and the Giants mobile app. John Schmelk, Lance Meadow with you. The phone number is 973-667-1960, 973-667-1960. You can also reach out and send in your questions to our portal at Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions, or just hit us up on Twitter at hashtag Giants Chatter, either of our handles, and we will answer your questions that way. And... I might be tuning in to Giants.com and say, whoa, 2 o'clock? What the heck's going on here? Well, this is the first day our show's moved to 2 with the training camp schedule, Lance. Uh, media will be taking place between 12 and 1.30. So we obviously don't want to do the show while the players and coaches are talking to the media. We want to be able to discuss what they talk about when they uh, relate their experiences to the media. So uh, for the rest of training camp, and then we'll see what Joe Judge's regular season schedule looks like. That remains to be seen. At least for the duration of August and that first week of September, we'll be on from 2 to 3 every weekday. We've made these adjustments before, so it's no different. We're just making sure that we can get the latest info out and about here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. And Joe Judge did speak today, so this was the first time in which we were able to instantaneously react. Similar to his first press conference, John, which we had played live on Friday. But now we got another taste of what Joe Judge has experienced with the players. And I think what jumped out to me is just the fact that Right now, they're trying to get to know the players, number one, because this is really the first time that they've been engaged with one another in the same location. And number two, it just goes to show you that until you put the pads on, which we've been saying pretty much every single training camp, there's only so much you're going to learn and take away from the players. And I think that's what Joe Judge's biggest message was. They're trying to make the most of these very slow-paced walkthroughs until they put the pads on, and they're trying to be creative. You know, they're lining up garbage cans and coaches... (laughs) to pretty much simulate formations for offensive and defensive players. And we talked about adapting and adjusting, and I think that's exactly what's going on, at least in the early stages of training camp. Yeah, this is what's happening right now, folks. Um, Right now, there are two versions of their outdoor activities. They're doing strength and conditioning which is one session. The coaches are not out there for that. That's just the trainers and the you know strength and conditioning coach getting the guys in shape. And then you have the walkthroughs, which is kind of what Lance referenced, which is literally walking speed, walking through the plays. So it kind of gives them an introduction to actually executing what they've done and talked about via Zoom over the last four months and do it on the field, but obviously it's being done at a tenth of the speed. So it, it does help sometimes, just even doing it in a walkthrough situation, learning. So that's kind of what they're doing. The coaches are allowed to be outside with the players doing those things. So that's that's kind of where they're at right now. And uh, there was some news that Joe Judge to talk about, Lance, that things that have happened since uh, we last heard from him on Friday of last week. And by the way, at 2.30, David Carr from NFL Network will be joining us, just FYI. We'll talk about Daniel Jones's rookie year and uh, his adjustment in year two with all of the interesting surroundings uh, that's going on with his second season. Uh, but he talked about Nick Gates Lance, who obviously got signed to a contract extension, um, a two-year extension, a guy that was an undrafted free agent, so you have a very you have a smaller deal then. So you had to, if you want to have him long term, you have to extend them. So the Giants did, and he basically said that he will have the opportunity 
to play every single offensive line position throughout camp. But there's going to be a focus and hope the chance to compete for an offensive tackle starting job and the starting job at center. And uh, to quote, maybe this is not a quote, but to paraphrase Joe Judge, is that they're going to have to manage his practice time very carefully to make sure he gets enough reps at each spot. Which is no different than what the previous coaching staff pretty much had to do in terms of also trying to get him as many reps as humanly possible at various spots on the offensive line, even though he did ultimately wind up starting games on the right side, whether it be at guard and tackle. We've talked about his versatility. I think the combination of the extension, John, and what Joe Judge said to the media today to me is pretty much a continuation of what Pat Shermer and his coaching staff had echoed, which is they have always been very high on Nick Gates because of his versatility. Shermer was very pleased with his work ethic and very pleased with his performance when he started and took advantage of his opportunities, as I mentioned, on the right side last year when Mike Remmers was a bit banged up. So it's positive to see the new coaching staff pretty much see similar things in Nick Gates that the previous one did. And you need that offensive linemen on staff and we talk about this when you have to make decisions in terms of who's active on game day and especially since you're going to pretty much have to make eight guys on the offensive line active on game day that you need to have somebody that whether they started a position whether their strong suit is at one position they need to be able to move around and be plugged in at various spots And that's the beauty of a guy like Nick Gates. You could put him at guard and you could put him at tackle because we've already seen that in a game situation. Now the million-dollar question is if they continue to give him more exposure at center, which once again is nothing new because he's taken practice reps at center before, will he show them enough to push a guy like Spencer Pulley? That's going to be interesting to look at because I think Shane Lemieux, John, is really in the same boat as Nick Gates when it comes to the opportunity at center. Lemieux is also a player that has had a vast array of starts, mostly at guard in college, but Mario Cristobal, the head coach at Oregon, said we practiced him at center on a daily basis in the event that we needed to plug him in. So I think that's going to be something to monitor. How much work does Gates, how much work does Lemieux get at center in practice, knowing that there's no preseason games, and is it enough substance to say, hey, maybe we'll give him the slight edge over Spencer Pulley. That, to me, is going to be, I think, one storyline, obviously, that you can probably move up to the top of the list as we go through training camp here. Yeah, no question about it. And the key is to get him enough snaps at each spot to really give a true evaluation to see if he's the best option at center or tackle. So you want to make sure he's ready to back up them all. But if he's the best player, you also want to find that out. So you have to give him enough opportunity at each spot to make that determination. One other thing that Joe Judge talked about, Lance, I thought... That was interesting is that he was asked about Marcus Golden officially being back in the mix. And I think it was Patty Train who asked about how now you have really four guys, three returning players, Golden, Lorenzo Carter, O'Shane Zimenez, along with Kyler Fackrell, the new addition, as well as some you know guys without as much experience. So you have guys that played a lot of snaps at edge rusher over the past couple of years. And Joe Judge was asked, Lance, about how he would use them. And he basically said, yeah, look, they're interchangeable. They're all quote-unquote edge rushers. But at the same time, each guy does things better than other guys. So they're going to try to figure out what each guy does best, put them in the position where those skills can help the team the most, and that's when those guys are getting on the field. So 
Maybe one guy's an edge rusher, but his best suit is run defense. Well, you're going to see him a lot on early downs. Maybe another guy is best is best suited to rush the passer. Well, you're going to see him then on passing down. So, you know, again, Joe just continues to go back to this theme that he's going to first thing first, see what his players are good at, and then try to use them in that role as much as they possibly can. Well, and it also plays into what Patrick Graham was preaching when he first returned to the organization, which was multiple, because I think that taps right into what you're talking about, John. If you have guys that you can line up on the line of scrimmage, you can also have them as stand-up linebackers. You can have them off the edge in the interior. You're going to try to put the guys that best suit the down and distance from the opposition. And the only way they're going to know what the strengths and the weaknesses of these players are is to try to simulate situations, obviously, through the course of training camp. I think Marcus Golden having him back specifically, which was what the framework of the question was, and then obviously Joe Judge branched out on the volume of players that he has at that position. But Golden is somebody that is versatile. Golden is also relentless. He's an energizer bunny. And you pretty much know that whether he wins the battle initially, he's going to continue to fight on the play. So anytime you could bring somebody like that with that type of work ethic, I think is a positive. The other thing is he helps boost the resume of the pass rushing group because we've been talking about this all offseason, John. Kyler Fackrell is the only player on the roster prior to Golden's return that had a double-digit sack season when he had 10 and a half in 2018 with the Packers when he was with Patrick Graham, who was his positional coach. Outside of that, you're talking about guys that were a mix of four to five sacks a season, but nobody who's really a proven commodity. You have a few guys that have been with the team, some guys that are looking for breakout campaigns and so forth. Golden, at least, is now another player who's had two double-digit sacks seasons. Remember, he had one with the Cardinals when he had 12 and a half and 16. And then last season, of course, when he had 10. So now you at least feel you could put Golden and Fackrell on the field at the same time. And now you're pushing the offense into the mind game of do we need to account for one? Do we need to account for two? So I think every team needs two solid options. The Giants now appear to have that on paper. How versatile, how creative this group is, is going to depend on the rest of the group, to Joe Judge's point, in terms of what they see in camp and how comfortable they feel in lining them up, whether it be, once again, on the exterior or in the interior. Yeah, no question about it. And I think it'll be interesting to see how they use those guys and you know, what guys prove to be the best pass rushers? And it's important to yeah. get that rush off the edge. Which guys are they going to depend on when it's third and 11 and you need a big stop in the second half? Is it going to be Carter? Is it going to be Zimenez? Who are going to be the guys that they depend on to get after the quarterback in those situations? Uh, the last thing that I thought was interesting, Lance, and I'll let you kind of point at anything else that jumped out at you, was Joe Judge talked about, you know, whether or not players and coaches would be sequestered in their hotels. And he made the point that league rules do not allow them to sequester the players in hotels. It's their choice, but they have the hotel available to the players to stay there if they like. He's not forcing the coaches there. But I, I maybe pumped up's the wrong word, but I feel confidence when I listen to Joe Judge describe the importance of being responsible off the field and how that is just part of the sacrifice now of being an NFL player, and how not just the players have to do it, but the families have to have to do it too. And, you know, this is something where he talked about guys that work on like an oil rig or an oil tanker, right? They're away from their family for three, four months at a time, and, you know, they make a lot less money than NFL players do, but it's a sacrifice they make to, to ply their profession. So, you know, the point that he made is that, look, we all want to play the game. We all want to earn our contracts, right? 
and everyone, including the families of these guys that work with these players, are all going to have to be responsible. They're not going to force them to sequester. They're not going to you know, lock them in a hotel and, and bubble them up. But they're going to have to depend on everybody here to be responsible. And just the, the passion that Judge talks about it with and the seriousness, I got to imagine he does so at least as much, perhaps more so when he talks to his team. And it makes me feel confident that these guys are going to listen to him and it should limit the exposure to the team um, to COVID, hopefully, and try to make this as clean of a season as possible. Well, the key is whether or not the message gets delivered to the players and then the second part of it also is, of course, the players then following the rules. I thought what was also interesting, and in addition to guys on an oil rig, he also brought up soldiers who also make the ultimate sacrifice, of course. I think that goes without saying and are away from their families for sometimes years. And they also know being well-disciplined is a key component in keeping the entire group healthy and so forth. So maybe that's an extreme parallel, but the point is that he's selling it to his team on a consistent basis. And every coach has that challenge, John, not just Joe Judge. Let's face it, the 31 other teams oh, have yeah. the same challenge, that they have to make sure that their players are reminded of that on a daily basis when you leave the facility, you now have to be a responsible adult. That is not just thinking about you and your family, John, but also is thinking about everybody else on that roster. Because Judge said it multiple times on the media call, and he used himself as an example, where I go, I then have to think about me bringing it back into the facility. So if you have that mindset and it becomes second nature, yeah, there's no reason why people shouldn't be confident. The other thing that I thought connected to what you brought up was an interesting point that he raised he was told about how the New Orleans Saints are trying to take it maybe a little bit further than voluntary to have their players and coaches stay in a hotel to create this somewhat mini-bubble environment. But, you know, I thought he hit it right in the nose. You could try to create a hotel environment where you have your players and coaches and they're not going out and about. The bottom line is, John, they still don't have to travel back to the facility or the stadium where you're having practice compared to the NBA and the NHL where pretty much the living quarters and the competition is all in the same area where it's truly a bubble. So even if you try to create a mini bubble, it really isn't a bubble because people are coming and going. And it's the same thing that's going to happen when you travel during the course of the regular season. You could create a bubble during your home stints and coming and going from the facility. But the true test is going to come when teams, employees, and the coaching staff and the players actually have to get on a plane, go to a foreign city, and make sure that all the protocols that they're practicing so well and are effective are then duplicated when they're on the road. That, to me, is going to be the true test once the season gets going. Yeah, luckily they'll be able to limit, Lance, unlike baseball, who are in these hotels for like three days yeah. at a time. You know, the NFL, if they fly a little bit later in the day, maybe they're going to be in these hotels like 12 hours. If they play 1 o'clock on a Sunday, they get there at like, you know, let's say like 5 o'clock on a Saturday, they're going to be in that hotel for like, you know, 17 hours, something like that. So it's not necessarily going to be the same situation as baseball. So it's a lot easier to kind of just hang out in your room, go to your meeting rooms and the ballrooms, and, you know, just don't go out. You know, there, there are curfews anyway. So, you know, you hope you can, you know, figure these things out as kind of you move forward. And the last thing I want to mention, and this connects to David Carr, who will again be joining us at 2.30, you know, he talked about Daniel Jones and how right now, you know, really just trying to get the quarterback cadence right, getting the players understanding, you know, how Daniel Jones is presenting each play, verbalizing it properly to make sure each player gets the information they need. Those are the type of really basic things you can do while you're doing walkthroughs.
Yeah, and he also mentioned when he was asked the question about how much different is this for Daniel Jones than the previous year, and you know he made the generalization he didn't think it was that different, but in fairness, let's face it, while I know it's a very small coaching community, unless Joe Judge had a personal conversation with Mike Shula and Pat Shermer, <laughs> he wasn't around. John, right. for last year's offense. So, you know, when he's asked questions like that, how much different it is, Daniel Jones is probably best suited to answer that question yeah, more and, so than anybody else on the staff. And these right guys now. have answered those questions before, and they've basically said, yeah, it's very different. So <laughs> it's different. It just is. And that's not a stunning takeaway. Like anything else, when quarterbacks or defensive players have to take on a new system, you expect the jargon to be different. But the bottom line is schemes haven't drastically changed in football over the last few years. So a lot of the things that you've seen with your very own eyes, you at least have that basis to bring to the table. But the way Jason Garrett calls plays, the way he navigates and manages a game is going to be different than the way Pat Shermer does. I, I think that should be, once again, assumed. I don't think it's a dangerous assumption. It's just a matter of Daniel Jones getting a feel for what Jason Garrett likes, Garrett, vice versa, getting a feel for Daniel Jones. The only concern that I've had, and this is something I obviously want to bring up with David Carr, and I'm very interested to hear his insight. When you don't have the preseason games, John, I mm. look at the preseason games as this is, we hear the dress rehearsal term. Well, specifically, a simulated way for Jason Garrett to call a game and be in Daniel Jones's ear so that he knows, okay, these are the types of things that Garrett looks to do to maybe start a drive, or this is what he says in his play calling that I need to then transfer to the rest of the team. Those are things that practice can only present so much of that because the game environment, as you well know, is much different. And I just wonder the loss of that how much does that impact the coordinator-quarterback relationship, regardless of how much experience the two have had together or how much the two have had together within the confines of the NFL? All right, let's open up the phones at 973-667-1960, 973-667-1960. Get on the line. We'll take calls for the next 12 minutes or so until we have David Carr coming your way at 2.30. You can also send in your tweets to hashtag GiantsChat, or you can send your questions into Giants.com slash podcasts slash BBK questions. Those are all the different ways that you can get in touch with us and interact with us here on the program. So, you know, Lance, we got about a week or so until we're going to get into kind of OTA-style activities. That's going to start around on the 11th when guys are going to be able to do, you know, no helmets, no pads, you know, real kind of, you know, full speedish practices. Then you get into shells and helmets, and then eventually on the 17th you get to pads. So we're still about... 12 days away from pads and about a week away from, you know, OTA style, mini camp style action, which, you know, look, you don't see a lot. You don't, you can't tell a lot without pads on, but at least you can see the DBs and the wide receivers going one on one and you can get something out of that. Well, and you get the guys moving around, too, within sort of a practice scheme, which I think is important because the one thing Joe Judge mentioned, by the way, right at the tail end of his media session, he was asked about the energy level of his guys, and he said that he was very pleased with that. He also said that just from a physical standpoint, he felt a great deal of the team was well-conditioned and was staying on top of things while they were away from the team. So he was very pleased with that, meaning he doesn't think they have to play a great deal of catch-up in terms of getting guys to the level that's needed or called upon just to get through a high-speed practice. So I think that is encouraging. But once again, it's all about going through the motions and getting a feel for what the offense and the defense is going to be about when you're on the field because you can only get so much from the Zoom meetings. I think what 
what Jason Garrett and Patrick Graham, as well as Joe Judge, learned is they probably learned from an intellectual standpoint where guys are and the concentration level. Okay, so what is life going to be like when we have the positional groups? And what is it going to be like when we have our meeting rooms? Who's very attentive? Who maybe do I need to stay on top of? I think that's what you got the gist of, John, in a Zoom meeting. Now you get to see, hey, maybe there's some guys that don't jump off the computer screen in the Zoom meeting, but are very high energy and bring out the best in their teammates when we get out of the field. And then there's maybe the other guys that are so attuned to what we're talking about in the Zoom meeting, but they need to bring up the energy level. So I think that's the next stage of what's going on in training camp. And then, of course, you start to graduate to as close to what maybe you're going to experience in games. One other thing, John, by the way, as we were covering the topics that Joe Judge brought up, in addition to Nick Gates and Daniel Jones, he was also asked about Chandler Cantazero the new kicker for the team, and he was asked why did they go in the direction of him versus maybe exploring some other guys on the free agent market or a Steven Guskowski, for example, who Judge Judge has ties to with the Patriots. And one of the things he brought up was familiarity with the stadium, which is something that I don't believe we've discussed at all for the most part on this program or wasn't brought up, I think, as a major storyline when the Giants went out and signed him. And given the fact that he's with the Jets and knows the wind and so forth, as you well know, there's a different can of worms, okay, when you come and you kick him at Life Stadium. Maybe not as bad as Giant Stadium, but still, it is a unique feel, and sometimes with a limited offseason, it doesn't hurt to have somebody on the roster, especially within the kicking game, and Joe Judge, remember, is a special teams coach, so he knows those little nuances can make the big difference, that that maybe was one of the driving forces why they decided to bring him in. Yeah, and you wonder if there's going to be another guy brought in for competition at some point, too, and then you have to consider, too, with this extended practice squad, Lance, whether or not you have to have a kicker on the practice squad now in case there is a last-second issue uh, with one of your kickers after 4 p.m. on Saturday. And, you you know, the only way you can bring somebody up after 4 p.m. on Saturday is if you bring them up off of your own practice squad. So the question is now, do teams have to have that extra kicker ready to go in case the, you do have that, you know, Saturday night, Sunday morning positive test where a guy can't play? Well, here's the thing. On that 16-man practice squad, and I really like this move just to give teams more flexibility, you could keep six guys with no limit on a crude season. So that opens the door, John. If you have another veteran kicker who you you liked in camp, let's say the Giants do bring in another to perform at a level to present competition, and maybe if he passes through waivers or released and then you put him on your practice squad, you can hold a guy like that on your team. Or a punter, for example, or a guy that obviously can punt and kick, which I probably would think would be the move. If you're going to keep somebody on the practice squad, I would think, John, it would be somebody that has punting experience and kicker experience, so this way you're not using two roster spots maybe for an emergency punter and emergency kicker. The other thing that comes to mind is I think it also opens the door to keep a veteran quarterback on your practice squad, which is something that we weren't discussing previously because here's an example where Alex Tanny now is eligible to be on the practice squad. Prior to this, John, he was not eligible because he was over the limit in terms of accrued seasons. Now all of a sudden, if you're going to have six guys who have no limit, that means it doesn't matter how many years Alex Tanny was in the NFL. If you think highly of him, you maybe don't have to use up a roster spot on the active roster. You keep him on the practice squad knowing that he knows the offense and you could call him up in a pinch. So I think that completely changes the dynamics in terms of roster structure this season. Yeah, no question about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how these teams structure these things. And the other move that I like, too, and we talked about this yesterday when I was on with Fiegels, is that every Tuesday a team can protect four players from their practice yeah. squad roster that can't get claimed. And I think the strategy there is going to be interesting, right? 
is it going to be for veteran teams, the veterans that you're going to protect? Because you want to have, you know, those guys ready to go in case a key cog gets hurt on game day, while maybe the younger teams, Lance, that are rebuilding and are, you know, more concerned with the future than the present, maybe they're going to try to protect some of those younger guys, you know, guys that were undrafted free agents that they don't want to lose and players like that. So that'll be interesting, whether or not those teams and, and how they kind of form their strategy based on where they're at. Well, because that goes into the continuity conversation. You want to maintain the group that you think very highly of. The one thing that I want clarification on, which I have yet to get, is is there a limitation on how many times you could protect one of those players, John? I don't believe so, not based on what I've read. Well, because what I read before the announcement yesterday was when you call guys up from the practice squad to the active roster, the initial agreement was that you call up the same player twice. He doesn't have to then pass through waivers. He immediately reverts back to the practice squad. And this is an extra layer to the protections that go into play on Tuesday. I'm talking about when you call a guy up to get your roster to 55. Okay, so the first week, if you bring up a running back and a linebacker, fine. You can then do that again the second week. And then those two guys can continue to go back to the practice squad. But the agreement initially, and once again, I didn't see an update on this, was that after two times, the third time you do that, then those two guys have to now go through waivers, which means you run the risk of losing them to another team before they revert back to your practice squad. So that's why I'm just curious, when you make the protections on Tuesday, is there going to be a point where, hey, you protected this guy five straight weeks, you can't do it a sixth time? Now, that I have yet to get clarification. Based on, I'm reading the letter that DeMaurice Smith sent to the players, and there is no mention of that here. And there's not even a mention of guys being having a limited number of times they can get brought up either. So I'm not sure if that got eliminated in the final agreement too. Maybe it did. I'm not sure. But that's kind of where we stand here. I do not see that limited anywhere here in the letter that DeMaury Smith sent to the players. So uh, I imagine a lot of the stuff we'll figure it as we go along. Uh, a lot of the salary stuff is still kind of being sorted out, though I think we finally have clarity on that now. Um, it'll be interesting. All right, well, David Carr in four minutes. We do have a caller on the line. Let's get to him quick before we get to David. Caller, you're on the line with Lance and Schmelk. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, it's Scott from New Mexico. Scott, what's up? Uh, real brief question. In the situation that exists now, and obviously as it's going to move forward, is it really going to come down to where the coach is going to have to rely more on simply gut instinct and maybe analytics as to how they determine where players are going to be in the lineup? Well, well first things first, Scott, those, the, those are like the opposite things. So, I mean, you, no, you, can have, you can have analytics, you know, as the tendencies, what teams are going to do. Right. Uh, you know, as you prepare for a Pittsburgh, for example, you know some of the things. But I'm talking about for the players themselves, is it really just really come down at this point because of the situation that exists to really just gut instinct as to what you think these players will be able to do for the Giants? You mean in terms of when they put their 53 together? Yeah, basically. That's what I was trying to get at. I got you. All right, Scott. Thanks for the call, man. We okay, appreciate good. it. Thanks. Thank you. Um, no, nah, I mean, look, they're going to have enough time on the field here. Uh, it's not a lot. It's not as much as you would like, but you're going to have 14, up to 14 padded practices. You know, all in all, you're probably going to have – if you count the OTA-style practices, land somewhere around 20, give or take, practices over the course of training camp. And they'll get enough of a feel, I think, for these guys um, to see exactly what they bring to the table. 
Well, the veterans you have a lot of film on, and they've studied the bulk of these players during the course of the offseason. So well, yeah, I don't know yeah. and, how and much have... analytics you need to worry about. For example, Kyler Fackrell, you haven't seen him in a preseason game, but I think Patrick Graham knows the strengths and weaknesses of a Kyler Fackrell. So Correct. I think that question is better applied to more of the undrafted guys and the rookies, specifically the late-rounders who you don't have a feel for what they could do on the NFL level. That, to me, is maybe more of gut work ethic, what you see at practice. Maybe you're going to have to utilize a little bit of that. But as far as decisions on the veterans, there's more than enough substance at this point that these coaches have on film, having studied them during the free agency period, having gone up against a lot of these guys during their coaching careers, that they know, at least in the early stages, how they're going to utilize them and who they'd want on the roster. And like anything else, John, once week one, two, and three come into play, then you're going to get more film. You're going to see game situations of your own players. You're going to make adjustments. And you're going to realize, you know what? We thought this guy was a good pass rusher. It hasn't shown up over the first three weeks. Now we got to move him around. So yeah. there's going to be a lot of that, I think, in the early stages of the season as well. Yeah, and Lance, and I think it'll be a deal where, you know, they're going to, when in doubt, go with the veteran more than other off seasons where you sure. know what you're getting because, to your point, you have the previous tape from previous years. You know what these guys can do. When the rookies, you know, you're projecting it off a very limited sample size. So, obviously, you're not going to cut your first, second, third round picks, right? But if you're sitting there and, you know, you got your fifth round pick sitting there and you're like, or I don't think in the Giants case that would be the case. Let's say your sixth round pick if you're the Giants, right? And you're sitting there like, oh, well, you know, I think he can do this. I think he can do that. But you have a linebacker that's in his seventh year like, well, I know this guy can do those things. Who do you think you're going to keep? You know what I mean? Of course. And that's why I wouldn't be surprised if you lean towards the veteran. However, I just wonder, John, with six players once again on the practice squad that have no limit on accrued seasons, does that then change the mindset of a coaching staff and say, okay, well, maybe we can actually store this guy on the practice squad and we don't have to worry about sacrificing the rookie, meaning we could keep the rookie on the active roster. We have high hopes that this veteran is going to be released and not be signed anywhere, and therefore we can have him back on the practice squad. Because I think the six players with no limit on accrued seasons, I think that's somewhat of a game changer. That's something we've never had in terms of volume and in terms of flexibility when it came to constructing the roster. So I think that, to me, is a huge positive that now all of a sudden opens the door for some teams to say, well... I was heading into this season thinking the veteran has a significant edge over the young player, mainly because if we get rid of the veteran, we can't bring him back because there's no way we could put him on the practice squad. Now that you have that option, you wonder, does that change the thinking of coaching staffs and say, well, now we'd rather keep the young guy, especially from the Giants perspective, a relatively young team, but we still like the value of the veteran from a leadership perspective or how much he could push guys in practice or his familiarity with the scheme. So we like him in-house, especially if somebody gets hurt. But we think now our chances increase that we get him on the practice squad. I would think that, to me, completely changes the mindset of what a coaching staff was thinking heading in. So that, to me, is something to at least keep in the back of your head. Because I know this entire offseason, all we were talking about was the fact that veteran players have a significant edge over younger players. And it's going to be very difficult for the undrafted guys, the late-round picks, having no OTAs, no rookie minicamp, 
No mandatory minicamp, only Zoom meetings. And on top of that, the 90-man roster being cut already to 80 so the Giants can have the entire team practicing together, which was something that Joe Judge talked about earlier, remember, where he said, we're Mm going to bring 90 back. Yep. And then we're going to get down to 80 little by little. It's completely changed things, John. No question about it. Now let's bring in our guest. He is David Carr. You remember him as a former backup quarterback for your New York football giants. Now you can find him on Twitter at DCar8. You can also find him on NFL Network. Inside training camp live coverage airs throughout the week on NFL Network starting each day at 1 p.m. Eastern. I saw David on that show, I believe, on Monday, if I'm not mistaken, David. First and foremost, thank you for being with us, and I hope you and the family, everybody in your world, is safe and healthy in what's been a very difficult year. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's been uh, it's been different for everybody, actually, <laughs> as you guys well know. So offseason's been different. We're just all trying to figure it out together, so what happens yeah it's absolutely all you can do uh we had you on today Davis. i thought you'd be a perfect guy to talk about daniel jones too and kind of what a unique situation he's heading into his second year in uh with the virtual offseason new coach new system you know what it's like to play in new york so i want to start here first to set a baseline what was your evaluation of daniel's 2019 season as a rookie I really liked what i saw from daniel i mean going all the way back to his his days in college and then covering him for, you know, his time as he was preparing for the draft, watched his pro day. I thought he had the best pro day that I'd seen in the last two decades from a quarterback as far as where the ball placement was and how he threw it and where he threw it. It was, uh, it was incredibly impressive uh, to me. So I was not surprised when the Giants took him as high as they did uh, a few years back. I think the, uh, the really cool part, as I – as you look at young guys having been in that situation before, I know how difficult it is to jump in there and just fully trust, you know, the offensive line and the things that are happening around you and really dial into what your read is and where to go with the football. And I thought Daniel, since he's been in there, has done an incredible job. Now the offensive line hasn't always been consistent, as you guys well know. So it's been up and down for him. And he's made some maybe turnover-worthy plays or he's had some times where, you know, maybe he's – you know, he's not as clean as you'd like him to be, but I, I think the biggest thing for Daniel that I see, um, having played that position, is he's fearless. And Eli Manning had that same pocket mentality where he would just almost to almost to a fault, he would keep his eyes down the field, trying to let his routes develop and give those guys a chance. He throws with great anticipation. He really knows what he's looking at when he's dissecting coverage. Um, so when you really study Daniel's tape, the things around him aren't always clean. But if you guys can put together a solid offensive line unit that was that honestly that was with uh, that was with you know me and Eli back in the day, I mean if you guys can find some consistency there, he's going to be an incredible player because he just has everything that you ask for as far as toughness, competitiveness, understanding what he's seeing. He's rarely fooled in coverage. Um, I think he's I think he's a great young player. He just needs a little bit cleaner pocket and and honestly maybe even mix in a little bit with his legs. I mean Jason Garrett's got. He's, you know, he's got the, he's got a good young player. He's got a good backs. I mean, they can be really creative and kind of bring some of the, you know, have to do a lot of it. But I think that if you have a guy that can run like Daniel, I think you'd be remiss not to involve his legs somehow in the run game. David, you brought up the term consistency, and I think that's key in terms of looking ahead to 2020 because when you had your yeah. second stint with the Giants, 
it was you, it was Eli, and then you still had Kevin Gilbride carrying over from your first in Tom Coughlin. So, you know, during the 2011 lockout shortened season, I would think that would be extremely beneficial. You were entering a system you were familiar with, individuals you were familiar with. You look at Daniel Jones now, as you mentioned, Jason Garrett, brand new system, brand new language, some new players around him. And there's also his third new offense, David, in the span of three years, which I'm sure is challenging for any young quarterback on any level of football. How much is that going to be to overcome with this current structure of an offseason? Well, it's not, it's, it's not to the point where he's not going to be able to do it. I think that it's just a, a familiarity that you have. Like, you think about Brady and when he was in New England, he was there for two decades basically running the same offense. He didn't have to worry about his audibles changing. He didn't have to worry about because that's a, a real thing. When you get up to the line of scrimmage and you've done something for so long, and I know Daniel hasn't. He's gone through a lot of change early. But when you've, you've gotten used to an offense, you can, you can roll back in the Rolodex and just pull a play up or pull up a call up, or maybe you can reference something in a split second where if you are, are brand new to that offense, it just takes you a little bit of time. It takes you an extra tick, and you're not as comfortable doing it. So it's almost like we don't really have a choice. You're kind of stuck in that position where in this next you know, month or so, you've got to try and cram as much of that as you can and make, make practice really high-intense uh, high type learning and, and make it a, a mental you know, gymnastics for him where he really has to push himself from understanding the offense. I would, I would rarely go out there if I was the Giants, especially with any offense, uh, any young quarterback, and just make it to where they know the calls, they know the coverage is coming at them. You really got to push the envelope, especially this year, just because you haven't had that OTA as many camps where they can really kind of get to know and, and really take ownership of that offense. I mean, Jason Garrett is going to do a good job. He'll put together a good offense, and he's got a lot of pieces to, to work with. Um, but you got you to become comfortable from a quarterback standpoint, and that only comes with time. David, how do you think practice will be different? Because there's going to be so few of them, maybe up to 20. The max is 14 padded practices uh, before you get to the first game. Now, there's no preseason game, so you're not probably going to do any of those carded practices where you're getting ready for opponents and stuff like that, which makes it a little bit easier. But how do you think they can alter practice here to make up for the fact that this is now going to be the first time they're doing an on-field installation instead of like the third time in a regular season to get Jones and everybody on the same page? Well, like you said, I mean, when when you're installing stuff in training camp, you've already done it like twice before that, usually. And that gives you a real comfort level as a quarterback. So you're not really doing that. Now, you probably have virtually, but it's different, though. When I'm sitting in my office and I'm kind of on the on the iPad or whatever it is, and I'm, I'm trying to work through an offensive meeting with the coaching staff, I mean, that's that's almost that's easy. You know, honestly, any, any quarterback worth anything is going to be able to do that and excel there and feel comfortable, but... It's a totally different thing when you get out there and you got to look these guys in the eyes and you're in the huddle with them and you got to go up there and run a play and then split second, got to audible something and get, get into that flow. So I think practice wise, uh, kind of like I mentioned a little bit earlier, it has to be super intense. It has to be at least, at least try to not, not where it's live in the quarterback where you're hitting guys and you're taking guys to the ground. You don't need to do that, but you can make it super competitive. And I would definitely do that ones on ones. I would do that three or four times where it's a legit work and guys feel like they've gone through almost a, uh, a quarter or a half of a football game. So then you give them time to rest and recover and you can, if coaches are smart, they'll be able to, they'll be able to figure that out. And they'll you know, have a good pulse of the team and see how they are physically and see how guys are advancing and progressing. Um, but that's what I would, I would 
almost guarantee that coaches are going to do is just try and simulate some of those preseason games while still keeping everybody healthy. Well, speaking of that subject, David, I'm curious from your experience having a preseason game, whether or not that was beneficial to get a feel for what your offensive coordinator was going to do in terms of play calling, the tone, and the ability to then pass that on to your teammates. So the fact that Daniel Jones is not going to have that asset to work with Jason Garrett, whether he's going to be up in the box or on the sideline, the little nuances like that, how much of a difference do you think that could have in the early stages of the season, given maybe the first few weeks of the year become sort of the third or fourth preseason game when they would have had the opportunity to go through things like that? Yeah, that's going to be that's going to be different. Um, the nuances are what what you're talking about, and that's the most important thing because, in reality, preseason games there's you really have to struggle mentally uh, to lock into those games because everybody knows that it's not worth anything, and all those starters know, and the veteran guys know that this is not the end game. This is just guys trying to get some looks, and maybe some young guys make some make a team, or they, you know they show flashes and then they end up, you know, developing during the season, but that's, that's hard to lock in. So you don't have to worry about that. Now the next game you play is going to be for real. It's going to be full on. Let's go. So you almost, you almost are really focusing on those nuances and, and hopefully it's even, even more so because I think a lot of times when you jump into that first game or first two games, there are some like, there, there's, there's an intensity that you're not used to in the preseason, that you're not used to in practice, and you try to simulate it. But I think that just because of the fact that there are no preseason games, the coaches are going to be kind of really focused on the fact that we need to make sure that we hit the ground running. There's going to be a big focus on making sure that, you know, we have a contingency plan for, you know, if a guy isn't going to be there and everybody's getting their reps. So I think just because there's no preseason games, guys are going to be really locked in. And like, you know, Bilicek said the other day, he's like, you know, college teams do this every every year. We interviewed him for the NFL Network the other day, and, and we're like, what are you going to do about preseason games? And he said, college teams do it every year. So we just have yeah. to be ready to play our first game. So I think that if everyone's dealing with it, it's going to be fine. And and they're and these are these are professional athletes; they'll figure it out. But yeah, that's going to be that's going to be a little bit of a hurdle. It's just a young 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 coach, uh, young quarterback with a with a with a veteran offensive coordinator, and how they mesh, you know, because that's that's a huge relationship. And uh, if they can kind of work through some things to. Um, maybe speed that process up, that'd be good for everybody. You know, Dave, I want to go back to your evaluation of Daniel's rookie year, which, by the way, I thought was right on the money and, you know, kind of how he can improve as a quarterback on the field just from, a, you know, playing the position perspective. And I think yeah. you hit it, right? Like, I don't want to say he's oblivious to the rush, yeah. but but he just doesn't care about it. So guys are in his yeah. face. He's making great throws, but sometimes he holds it a little bit too long. He might get hit. He might yeah. get stripped, cause a turnover. And a lot of that's instinctual. It's processing time. It's stuff that can only get better through experience. So as someone that lived it, yeah. you know, how big of a jump can he take in the processing, in pocket presence, feeling the pressure, knowing when he has to slide, when he can stick, when he has to move? How can a quarterback improve at those things heading into his second year? Well, honestly, he has, he's in the best position because he, he is to the side of not being aware of it. <laughs> where, that's kind of where you want him. Because you, know, you can always bring him back. Where, hey, man, okay, we, we, don't, we got a certain amount of time. Let's find our check down a little bit faster here. And that's fine. You don't want a guy that gets rid of it too fast or, you know, he'll take sack or, or he's just unsure of where to go. So that's, I mean, that's stuff that I struggled with early on because we never really got over that hump where we could get a consistent offensive line out there. So it was funny because I would get a one set of information from my offensive coordinator, like, okay, let's hold the ball a little bit. Let's let this route develop. 
And then I'd be walking down the hallway. The offensive line coach would grab me and say, hey, we got to get the ball out of our hands. Oh, and no. I'm like, what? I'm like, what's happening here? I'm 21 years old trying to figure out how to play quarterback. In NFL, you guys are giving me mixed messages, man. So I think that what Daniel has going on, I don't think that I'd change. I think that I would try to speed up his processing time. And I think that, honestly, is just going to come with playing. And the more he plays, he's going to understand there's a clock in your head. Okay, I don't have this much time to hang on to this football and wait for these guys. Let's just dump it down to the back. Let's take – you know, let's go get second and seven and, and take three yards on a check down and see if we can make something happen. So I think that's just a matter of playing and, and going through it. But but I really like where Daniel's at. It's almost like when Patrick Mahomes came out, they're completely different players. And Patrick kind of lives more on just making big plays and big throws. But it's kind of that vein, too, because he has such a big arm, you don't have to teach that. There's not a throw he can't make. So that's the, that's the good side of it. And Daniel's in the good side of really standing in there and being tough and just keeping his eyes down the field. So you can rein Patrick back in and kind of get him to kind of get through his reads better, get through his progression. Same thing with Daniel. You can you can talk him down into getting the ball out of his hand faster, find a completion. Let's stay in a positive down and distance. So that stuff is really kind of easy, and it just takes a little a little processing time and a little a little time in the saddle. As you alluded to, David, his numbers across the board extremely impressive, but I think if there's anything that the Giants want to see drastically improve, of course, it's seeing the turnovers get cut down because he did have 23 of yeah. them, and he lost 11 fumbles. Now, you talked about your experience early in your career with the offensive line, and not to pour salt in your wounds, but you know you had seasons, just yeah. so our audience understands, where you were sacked 76 times, you were sacked 68 times, so ball security was obviously a big priority that you had to deal with, and you had to make sure that you, know, you you wouldn't come back and cost your team. What were some of the things, yeah. David, that aside from the mental side that you had to work on to emphasize ball security, that is something that maybe could apply to Daniel as he looks to improve in that category in year two? Well, it's moving with a purpose. Um, I mean, I, I, th I think I still have the NFL record for most recovered fumbles. Uh, so, and they were mostly mine. <laughs> so I think I jumped on like 20 of them one year. Oh, but man. yeah, those oh, guys are, those guys are hawking at it. And, you know, if you hold the ball a little bit too long, they're going to come in, they're going to swipe at it. And you, you just have to get a feel for that. I was talking to Derek the other day about it, honestly. And he's like, you know, my first year, I thought I could step up in the pocket with kind of one hand on it and not really worry about it. He's like, now you literally, he's in there doing bicep curls and he's doing different exercises because Von Miller and those guys are literally trying to rip the ball out of your hands and the smart defenders doing the same thing. And especially if you show that you're a guy that will put it on the ground, that's when their antennas go up. So then it just kind of amplifies it more. So you never want to kind of be that. So I think early on, if I was coaching Daniel, there would be a big emphasis on when we move and we're doing any kind of, it seems like a, just a simple nothing drill. But when you're going through the individual with your quarterbacks and you're having them swipe at the ball and rip it out, just make a conscious effort. Overcoach that so he's keeping two hands on it. He's sliding and moving with a purpose. And even if you miss one or two big plays down the field, you know, at least you're going to be safe and you're going to make sure that you're hanging on to that football and you can, you can play the next down and you can at least, hey, it's okay to punt too every once in a while. You don't have to necessarily make the big play. So that's just, again, that's just a little processing thing that he's going to have to work through. But I think that if you emphasize it from a coaching perspective, you get what you emphasize. And that's what I've always found. And so if coach comes in and he's really focused on, hey, we're not going to turn the football over, we're going to keep it, and, uh, yeah, you'll get that because these guys will, will focus on what you what you emphasize. So I think you'll do a better job this year. David, final one for me, and I'll just take it from a general Giants perspective on this one. 
What are your expectations for the team this year? You know, it's a big change, young team, new coaching staff, new scheme on both sides of the ball, no offseason. Go down the list. The circumstances are not great, but this is year three for Dave Gettleman, year one for Joe Judge. What do you think Giant fans should be thinking about this year in terms of how their team can kind of take that next step and at least maybe be in the playoff mix and, you know, be mathematically in it around Thanksgiving? Yeah, I think that when you look at it from a honestly, what what is most concerning for me on both sides of the ball. So I think offensive line continuity there, and just making sure you guys find you know some guys that can at least work together throughout the entire season. Maybe they're young guys, but I think Jason Garrett will do a good job of you know designing up stuff where he can kind of protect those guys a little bit. But I think those young the young players in the offensive line really got to step up and gel and kind of just be a group that's going to have Daniels back and give Saquon some running lanes and because you have some talented guys in the skill positions. Yeah, you got a good matchup tight end. I mean, obviously the back, I mean, he can, he can touch the ball 40 times a game and that wouldn't be enough. So I like, I like what the pieces that they have there, the offense lines that come along. And then the secondary is probably the other question that I have is just, you know, you, you got to find a way to maybe, maybe you're not going to be a top 10 defense, you know, but that's okay. You can be an opportunistic defense. We've had those in New York before and won Super Bowls there. So you can find a way to just get the ball, take it back from the opponent, play good red zone defense, you know, and Daniel takes another step. Then you got a team that, okay, these guys are scoring some points now. The offensive line has come along. Now the secondary, if they can step up and have some of those young guys make some plays and, and just rip the ball out, like just be ball hawks, be, be almost those young guys that just don't know any better. And I think that, I think you got a chance. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're going to go out and win 14 games, but I think that a lot of teams are in the same boat that the Giants are in right now. You just, you have a couple holes that you need to make sure you fill and some guys got to step up. And if you can do that, then there's no reason that especially in New York, that they, they can't be competing for a playoff spot every year. So especially with that quarterback, I really like that. And with Saquon, I mean, just give him some, just give him to the line of scrimmage without getting touched, and we should be okay. So I'm excited to watch him play. David, before we let you go, speaking of the quarterback position, I think this is something that not just the Giants can relate to, everybody can relate to, is the fear of perhaps losing your starting quarterback because of a COVID-19 positive mm-hmm. test, maybe the Friday before a Sunday game, and Bruce Arians, Bucks head coach, has thrown out the idea of quarantining a quarterback. Now, you've been a starter, you've been a backup, and the reason I bring that up is you're used to going into a game where you get probably more mental reps, David, than you do physical reps because of the logistics of practice. If a team wanted to quarantine a quarterback, such as a veteran backup or somebody that is young and youthful, how realistic is that? And how realistic is it to expect a quarterback to be thrown into something if most of their interaction with the team, David, has been through simply virtual means for the last few weeks? I think it's almost impossible. Um, I, I think the idea, I, I understand the idea, and it makes sense if you're playing Madden, you know. <laughs> I'm going to go hide a guy on the practice squad, and if he needs to play, we'll throw him in there. But, man, that's got to be so difficult. I mean, football, quarterback's already hard enough to come in and play and get a feel for guys when you're getting limited reps with them and individual. Um, but, man, I, don't, I just don't know if that'd, be, if that'd be feasible because even, like you said, so even when I was backing up Eli, I didn't get a ton of reps during the season. I'm running mostly scout team stuff, but I'll throw some individual with some of the main guys just to, and we would do it just because if I had to play, I had to at least have thrown these guys a pass in the last couple months. So I'd get a handful of snaps with those guys, you know, during the week, but to not get any of them and just be completely separate from the team and rolling, it, you'd be better off calling me, honestly. Let's just be, let's just be real. <laughs> if you guys are going to do that, all quarantine in Bakersfield out here in California, 
if something happens to Daniel, you just give me a buzz. I'll get on the plane. You know, Dave, there, Dave, so. Dave, we might because, for, quite frankly, you you were on what I thought was the best Giants team I've been around in 2008. You guys were unbelievable, yeah. and you were on the, the last Giants team to win a playoff game in 2011. So. <laughs> Maybe know, that's man. not a bad idea. Yeah, Good luck you. charm. Yeah. You just let me know. Yeah, you guys just hit me up if that happens, and I'll make a flight. I'll be fine. I will send Dave Gettleman an email right now, David. I got you covered. Thanks, man. <laughs> Sounds good. David, good all stuff. Right, I really appreciate the time, man. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you down the line, all right? Thanks a lot, David. Thanks, fellas. All right. Okay. That's David Carr. Does a great job. You can find him on Twitter at DCar8. That's with two R's. You also find him on NFL Network as one of their great analysts, and he will be featured on many shows, including Inside Training Camp Live, and coverage for that show airs throughout the week on NFL Network starting each day at 1 p.m. Good stuff from David there, Lance. I thought it was very informative. Yeah, listen, David, unfortunately, can relate to what it's like when the trenches don't cooperate. You had to mention the sacks, didn't you? I had you, to. You, well, no listen. one likes needling and pouring <laughs> cold water on people like Lance Meadow. Wah, wah, wah. I have a knack for it, yes. Well, he somewhat opened the door for it when he, he did. did bring he up did. his own troubles with the offensive line. But, you know, he can relate to how ball security is so important when you get hit as much as he did, specifically early in his career. So I thought it was very interesting when he talked about how the offensive coordinator is telling him one thing in terms of holding on to the football, let the play develop, and then the offensive line coach says, David, I don't think you have much time to survey the field. You better get rid of the football. So, you know, that is unfortunate when people on the coaching staff are not necessarily on the same page, but that's why it's so important when we talk about continuity, John, and when you have groups that have been together, when people People know the offense left and right. The communication also is that much better. So, you know, by him just talking about his own personal experiences, I think it opened the door to when things go wrong, how it's not necessarily pleasant. But if you have everybody on the same page, there's ways to certainly operate around those issues. Yeah, no question about it. You know, you got to figure it out, right? And the Giants yeah. now, unfortunately, you know, without Nate Solder there at left tackle, they're going to have to make it work. And, yeah, Nate Solder a down year last year. I think everyone was hoping, or maybe counting on is the wrong word, but they were hoping that he would have a bounce-back year this year. But now somebody else is going to have to step in and do the job, whether it's Cameron Fleming or Nick Gates or Matt Parrott, whoever it might be. And I think Fleming and Gates are far more likely. Fleming probably the leader in the clubhouse simply due to his experience. And then you have to have a rookie step up and play well, right? Like, they, look, we think Andrew Thomas is going to be really good. They wouldn't have picked him fourth or if he was going to be really good. But if you look historically, Lance, offensive tackles in their rookie year doesn't always go great. You know, we had um, George Shahruri, who was one of the data analysts over at PFF, and he basically said that for nearly every position in the NFL, Lance, guys take their biggest jump in their second year, right? That's when their production and their PFF grade goes up the most in year number two. The two positions that that wasn't true for was offensive line and edge rusher. Those usually take a little bit longer, which is speaking to my point where in the first year, you know, that's a real big step up to go from college to pros at offensive tackle. So you hope these guys can step in and do the job and give Daniel Jones the type of security that he needs. But to David Carr's point, I think you go and you tell Daniel this year, all right, Daniel, here's the thing. We love what you're doing. And he's right, by the way. You would much rather have a guy willing to stand in there, take a hit, and throw in the face of pressure than a guy that's skittish and, you know, is bailing and running at the first sign of pressure and is, you know, getting the ball out faster than he should. You just got to tell Daniel, look, this year, let's just try to deliver that ball a little bit quicker, okay? It's okay to punt. It's okay to make that seven-yard gain. That's fine. But let's not, you know, hold the ball here and hang our offensive line out to dry 
and put yourself at risk to try to get a make a big time play, right? Let's not try and do that. Well, it's a matter of making adjustments. You know, listening to you break that down, I'm wondering how much of a resource and how much Jason Garrett and Mark Colombo learned from when Tyron Smith missed three games in each of the last four seasons, okay? That's the Cowboys' starting left tackle. Now, they did bring in Cam Fleming, so a little bit different because they had a veteran on the roster, so they weren't dealing with a rookie. But my point is, John, I'm just wondering, how much of a conversation is Jason Garrett and Mark Colombo, because he was there too, are they telling Daniel Jones, hey, when Tyron Smith went down, this is what we told Dak Prescott. And we told Dak, your mindset's got to be a little bit different now for these three games compared to when you have all of a sudden the luxury of an all-pro, pro-bowl left tackle. And this is how we changed up the game plan, and this is what we had to do. Once again, I don't know if that's a positive or a negative because of the circumstances are a little bit different because, once again, Dallas had a veteran to turn to. The Giants more than likely are going to turn to a rookie. But I don't think it hurts that Jason Garrett's not that far removed from life without his left tackle for a three-game sample size. And not just for one season, John, for the last four seasons in which Tyron Smith has been in and out of the lineup. So, you know, maybe that mindset is going to help. But, you know, the other thing that I wanted to throw out there in terms of the analysis that you mentioned that that PFF guest was bringing to the forefront how many rookies and I don't have the data in front of me over the last I don't know let's say the six seven years how many guys have jumped onto the left side of the line John and have had to start immediately you know that's the other thing that's At unique left because tackle probably not a ton I mean guys yeah. that come up like Eric Flowers is one right okay uh, so Jake, that's one Jake Matthews right it's probably another one um, from the Falcons. I think he started off on the right side, though, if I'm not mistaken. I think he started on the right side, too. Yeah, but again, it, it, he, they weren't talking left tackles. No, I know they weren't. Right. But, but I think there is a distinct difference, though, when you're also baptism by fire, throwing your rookie, who in all likelihood you project to be your future left tackle, but you're immediately moving him out to the left side. The reason I bring that up is I think the NFC East has had some of the strongest left tackles in recent history, okay? Oh, yeah. Maybe not necessarily for the Giants. Trent but Williams, Jason Peters, Tyron okay. Smith. Whew. That's a pretty impressive group, right? Oh, they're great. And I could tell you, Tyron Smith and Jason Peters, they started out on the right side. They did not jump to the left side immediately Jason as Jason Peters started at tight end. Well, there you go. <laughs> Remember, he was so, a tight yeah. end at Buffalo. <laughs> okay, so my point is, it was a progression, John, to the left side. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, hey, we love this guy coming out of the draft, but we're immediately going to throw him out to the left side. And once again, you and I have said this time and time again, and I have to emphasize it because we're not making it sound like playing the right side for a rookie is a cakewalk because there's elite pass rushers that defense is going to line up on the right side and the left side. It really doesn't matter, but the point is... There's a reason why there's a progression in moving a rookie towards the left side because sometimes maybe they just feel it's a little bit easier to get their feet wet on the right side before we put them perhaps a little bit more on an island on the left side. So there's a reason why there hasn't been a high volume in that department, and that to me is another hurdle that Andrew Thomas is going to be thrown right into the mix with. Yeah, no question about it. And by the way, I'm not, I don't want to freak people out, and I don't want to you know be a you know Debbie Downey here or doubt that he can do the job, but just so people understand, here are some of the, you know, guys that usually line up over left tackle that the Giants are going to face this year. Khalil Mack will do both, but he will certainly be over the left tackle some. Uh, Nick Bosa lines up almost exclusively over the left tackle, okay? Um, and they got a lot of other guys on that team, by the yeah, way, too. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the name's jumping out of my head. Who is the the Ohio State Redskins first-round pick, the defensive end? Help me out. The first-round, the 
Chase Young. Chase, Chase Young is going to line yes. up over the left tackle, I bet, more often than not. Brandon Graham will be on both sides, but he also is going to line up over the left tackle. Oh, and guess what? Shaquille Barrett's back. Do you remember how he did <laughs> uh, over the left tackle last year? Oh, and by the way, you know who's back? Chandler Jones. How did he do lining up over the left tackle last year when he faced the Giants? You know what I mean? So these are some guys that are going to be really, really, really tough to deal with You know, over the course of this season for whoever has to line up at left tackle. So it's not going to be easy. There are some really good edge rushers on this schedule, Lance. Really good edge rushers. Well, there's really good defenses. I take it a step further, but you're 100% right. I mean, the fact that we're focusing on Andrew Thomas, there's no doubt about it. He's going to have a true test, and he's going to have a true test right out of the gates because while the Steelers certainly could mix and match, T.J. Watt, Bud Dupree, are coming off oh, of two t- very I forgot about T.J. Watt. There we go. Yeah. I forgot about him. He was okay. a hell of, And Bud yeah. Dupree was good, too. You're right. So it's not going to be very easy immediately in week one. Now, is this a blessing in disguise for Andrew Thomas? Meaning, regardless of how well he performs, is it better to just get his feet wet immediately? I don't think that's a bad thing. But I think also a lot of it is going to be based on Andrew Thomas's confidence level and his understanding that, hey, I went up against some of the top pass rushers in the SEC. I handled my own. Now, in the NFL, it may not be as easy. It may not be as smooth. But if there's a game that's rough for me, I got to toss it to the side, have a short memory, and come back the next week and deal with the next challenge. Right, and here's the trick, Lance. By the way, you know, a guy like Andrew Thomas, who's been so dominant, and I apologize for jumping in and and interrupting you, but for a guy that's that good, you know, he's probably never had struggles like that before. You know what I mean? Like, he, he's going to head into this year, and he's going to have strug- probably He's probably going to have some games and some struggles where he's probably never had games where he played that poorly before. And mentally, to your point, you know, shooters got to shoot, right? You missed one shot, you got to forget it, you got to shoot the next one. That's what he's got to do. You know, as a quarterback, you, you can't remember the last time you get beaten. Same deal for the left tackle. You can't let the times you get beat mess with your head. You just got to keep going back out there, work with your technique, and the progress will come. You know, you're going to hate me for this, but Michael Jordan had a wonderful Uh, quote. (laughs) Hey, you brought up shots, so you could blame yourself. I know. Okay? And this was his quote. So this is a good way to end the show. Quote, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. End quote. I can't think of a better lesson for Andrew Thomas. John, can you? I will quote John Starks. You miss every shot you don't take. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's some turnaround on the quote machine. Wow. Boy, did we take a 180 (laughs) on this program. Actually, you know what? His, his his mentality actually is probably you make every shot you don't take. Yeah. You Knowing the way he puts shots up. I think J.R. Anyway. Smith has that same yes. philosophy too, yes, by the way. absolutely. Speaking of Knicks. I, I actually misspoke. <laughs> I believe it is you make every shot you don't yeah. take. Yes, <laughs> correct. Lance, that was good stuff, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you to David Carr. Fantastic job out of him. We'll be back tomorrow. You and Dettino tomorrow, Mr. Meadow? Indeed, yes. They'll be with you again 2 o'clock, the new time. You can find all the archives of Big Blue Kickoff live on Giants.com slash podcast and the Giants mobile app. And, of course, all your favorite podcast platforms. For Lens Meadow, I am John Schmelk. We'll see you next time, everybody. Stay safe.